Hello, good afternoon. We're in John chapter 6. Um, if you remember last time we looked at Jesus' um, saying, I am the bread of life. We looked at the um, before and after the passage we're going to read today, which is well known. The cord will come and never be cast out. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John and chapter 6. And we'll pick up our reading today at verse 35. And we'll stop at 48. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. There are seven I am statements in the book of John, and this is the first. Uh, we all have occasions to make promises in life, and hopefully more often than not, we're able to deliver on those promises. Parents make promises, however, they do not fulfill. Children make promises they do not fulfill. But it is good that as Christians... When Jesus makes us promises, he always fulfills them. And I want you to see that at the beginning and at the end, he says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. And then at the end, verse 48, I am the bread of life, bookending this section. But between these bookends, Jesus makes promises. He makes promises to his disciples. He makes promises to his opponents. And he makes promises to all of us. I want you to see with me seven promises that Jesus makes to you. You can count on every single one of them being true. Every promise, yes and amen, in Jesus. Promise one, verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That's a promise. We had the feeding of the 5,000, maybe more than 20,000 with women and children. And when they came back and they're following Jesus around because they had ate their fill of the loaves and thinking that this was a good deal. They wanted more bread. And Jesus is bringing them back to thinking about the Bible, about the Old Testament. So they're thinking about Moses and the manna that they had received in the wilderness as the people of God. And Jesus is saying that he is even greater than Moses and the manna. The whole context is surrounded by bread. 
So Jesus says to them, are you hungry for bread? Well, I will give you better bread. You will never go hungry. I'm not sure whether you've ever noticed the thing about eating. You always want to do it again. You always want to eat again. So it is amazing that Jesus says, you eat this bread, you will not be hungry. It means that Jesus never runs out. Whoever comes to Jesus will never be hungry. That's promise one. The promise, second promise is again in verse 35. Whoever believes in me shall nev- never thirst. And the meaning is very similar, parallel statements, food and drink. Jesus is the wine that never runs out. Jesus is the water that never dries up. Jesus is the water in the desert to quench your thirst when the world is offering you sweet, sugary drinks. Our world is constantly offering you sweet, sugary drinks in the desert. If they can express themselves, these sweet, sugary drinks, as money, your your home, your house, your job, your looks, your family. So take, take these sweet, sugary drinks in the desert. And the world is constantly telling you that they will satisfy you. And you know what? That first sip is so much better than water. And yes, in small doses, in the right proportions. Like many of the things that the world has to offer, many are good gifts from God. But ultimately, it will leave you thirsty if that is all you drink. And if you expect from... Well, from sex, from food, from money, from housing, even from family, that that will satisfy you. You'll keep coming back for more and more and more. And Jesus is saying, only if you drink from me will you never be thirsty again. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that you will never feel disappointed in life? No, no. It means essentially two things. It means that you will have ultimate satisfaction for your ultimate longings. Have you ever considered that maybe the reason that the world is not satisfying to you is because you were made for something more than the world? Just think about your, your, your greatest or your craziest dream coming true. Is that house on the ocean or a house up in the mountains or that promotion that you've been wanting your whole life or a certain sort of ideal family scenario or job scenario it wouldn't be enough only Jesus is enough and it means eternal satisfaction for your sins there is nothing but thirsty people in hell and I mean thirsty for happiness, thirsty for recognition, thirsty to prove themselves. Do you think people in hell have come to their senses? Do you think they finally see their sins and their ways for all eternity punished for their ongoing sins even? Thirsty still for that pride, thirsty still for that recognition, thirsty and never having a drop of satisfying water to drink. Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never thirst. Well, promise one, promise two, promise three, verse 37 now, we shift up from verse 35 to verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to Jesus 
or come to him. This promise, promise three, promise four, promise five, they touch on the doctrines of grace, often known as Calvinism or Reformed theology. And maybe this is a truth that you've never understood, or maybe it's a truth that you have never liked. But you like Jesus, right? So let us listen to what Jesus has to say. And then let us see how all of these promises fit together. So this promise, all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. Well, there are three parts to this transaction. One, the Father has a certain number to give. That is implied. Two, they are then given to Jesus. Three, they then come to Jesus. And that's the infallible progression. Jesus has a number of souls. The Lamb's Book of Life, they're given to Christ. And those given to Christ are then obliged and will come to Christ. And Jesus is absolutely confident in his logic, which is why he says in verse 37, all, not some, not most, not many, all that the Father has given me will come to me. He's confident in his progression because he is confident in the predestination. That Jesus understands that there is a choice prior to your choice. I choose you. You did not choose me. They're the words of Jesus, not only to the 12 disciples, but to all of his disciples. And you notice here that there is no indication that the number appointed by God the Father is based on some foreknowledge of our coming. In fact, we will see in a minute that it is not. We see that this choice is effectual. The fact that the Father has some and he gives them as a gift, as an inheritance to Christ, is enough to ensure that all of those will come. Now, this is not making you ready with an ability to come, but rather effectually, infallibly, those who are given to Christ will come. We must never forget that when we're talking about election or predestination that is in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3 to 4, we are chosen, we are predestined in Christ. All that the Father gives me. If you have faith in Christ, genuine faith in Christ, you are of the elect. And if you're of the elect, you are a gift from the Father to the Son. Do you ever think about that, the wonder of that? That the Father from eternity past, with a number of chosen ones here in verse 37, the elect, those predestined, given to the Son. All those given to Christ will come. Not one is wasted. Not one is ever lost. All that the Father gives to the Lord Jesus will come to him. So the progress of coming to Christ starts in eternity past with all that the Father has given to Christ. The beginning of this salvation is not with you, but is with God. Promise four, again in verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. None is wasted. None is lost. None is turned back. He will never be cast out. And it is important we understand this, especially with the promise that we come to in verse 44. Some have the mindset, well, we'll just get to heaven and it will all figure out. And things do figure out in heaven. But these truths are revealed for a reason, for our confidence, 
not for our doubting. And one of the things we fear sometimes is that we're going to come to Jesus or our loved one will come to Jesus and he will say, I did not choose you so you cannot come. But notice the language here. Yes, the Father has a certain number of those written in the Lamb's Book of Life, a certain number of the chosen ones given to the Son who will come. But now he says, and all who come will never be cast out. Jesus will never say to you or anyone, no, 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 I did not choose you. A broken and contrite heart, a broken heart, a contrite spirit, he will never deny. Divine election is never a reason to turn someone away. Divine election is the reason that anyone comes to Christ in the first place. Maybe it's not a great picture, but think about a tug of war and God always wins the tug of war. The only reason that you ever came is because the divine power and agency was pulling you, drawing you to himself. You will not be cast out. How did you get there in the first place except God drew you? Now, this is more of a promise than just the coming. The promise is actually for the staying. Notice what Jesus says in verse 38 and onwards. For I, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day and that is good news brothers and sisters Christ does not keep us for a day or a week or when we were young or when we we're in our 20s he keeps us for eternity this is an unbreakable chain from divine election in eternity past to come into christ in some present moment to the resurrection from the dead in the future if chosen you come and if chosen and you genuinely come you will be raised on the last day this is the commitment of christ himself christ is as committed to you as his chosen ones, as he is committed to obeying his heavenly father. He says, it is the will of my father that I should lose none of all that have been given to me. Think about it. If Jesus did not keep his people to the end, it would be to his everlasting shame, for he would be failing to carry out the will of his heavenly father. Jesus can no more lose any of his chosen ones, any of his people, than he can dishonor or disobey his heavenly father. I came to do his will and the father's will is that I should lose none. And if that is the father's will, I will lose none. I will not turn them away. I will never cast them out. I will keep them to the end. Promise five. We jump to verse 44 from verse 37. Verse 44. No one come, can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up in the last day. After the third promise, I suppose we could have thought, well, there might be some not given by the Father who will also come to Jesus. So we've heard promise three that all that the Father gives to Christ will come. But maybe there is a category besides those. Maybe there are some who come who are not part of those all. But here we say that here we see that that is not the case. And now notice the context, which is 
here is with the grumbling. Look at verse 41. They, you know, they're grumbling. He cannot be this messianic manner from heaven. We know his dad and mum. And we, we know where he comes from. He's not from heaven. He's from Nazareth. We all know Joseph and Mary, don't we? So how does he now say, I've come from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. You cannot come. You will not believe unless the Father draws you, which is what he says in verse 44. And to that, many are liable to say, well, that is not fair. It is our fault then. But the Bible will have us draw precisely the opposite conclusion. When Jesus says no one can come unless the Father draws him, it is not to say, well, then, it is not your fault. Rather, it is to say that if you do not come, it is not Jesus' fault and all the gospel's fault. You see, the understanding is, or misunderstanding is, okay, Jesus, if you are so great, why are these people not coming to you? If you are the Messiah, if you are all that, if you're doing miracles, you have this good news, should they not just come? Should they not just be drawn to it? Should they not be just flooding to you? Well, you know how the story ends. He will die as a convicted criminal on the cross with hardly a soul to be found who wants to be next to him. Has something failed? Jesus has not failed. The gospel has not failed. God the Father has not failed. Rather, Jesus makes this astonishment, astonishing statement. No one comes unless the Father draws him. Again, that does not mean that if you come, he will say, no, 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 you reprobate, you do not belong here. It does not mean that we do not freely offer the gospel because Jesus freely offers the gospel throughout John's gospel. The gospel of John is written so that you might believe and by believing have life in his name. It is the free offer of the gospel. But verse 44 does not mean that we are not responsible. We see elsewhere throughout John's gospel, that they're castigated in the strongest terms possible for their unbelief. They're responsible for their unbelief. What it does mean, however, is that God is sovereign over salvation. Is there any other conclusion to be drawn from verse 44? You cannot come unless the Father draws. In one sense, you could say that you'd be hard-pressed to find a more Calvinistic verse in the whole Bible. And yet to call it Calvinistic is almost blasphemous because there would be no John Calvin for 1,500 years. And who ultimately cares what John Calvin teaches except that it is in the Bible? This is not a Calvinistic verse. This is a Jesus verse. Which is why I say it is almost blasphemous to call it Calvinism when it is Christian. Now the drawing in verses 37 and 44 cannot be reduced to a prevenient grace. There would be many Christians who would say, well, this, we affirm Jesus said this, it is in the Bible, but it is a prevenient grace that God gives to everyone. He gives to everyone this sort of prevenient grace that makes you now able, if you make that final step, to come. So it puts you back to some kind of neutral state that you're able to come, a prevenient grace that he just gives to everyone but the final decisive decision is up to you but that doesn't work with the meaning of this passage for the drawing in view does not reach everyone this is not a prevenient grace that is showered on all people indiscriminately 
Jesus says this is, a, this is a particular, effectual, redeeming grace that draws people to Christ. One commentator says that the approach of the soul to God or Christ is not invited by the man, but by a movement of divine grace. Think of Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And immediately Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus does not say God keeps you from coming. He says you're unable to come unless God draws you. There's no place for vaunted free will. Our wills are not able to freely choose Christ. They must be made new. Do you see here from the lips of Jesus Christ that we have Verses to support unconditional election, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints, effectual atonement. And this verse 44 presumes the sinner's total depravity. You didn't have to go to Geneva to find that. You need to go to Jesus. Now, this is no impetus for inactivity, but a catapult to action. Pray for God to move because he needs to move and he can move. Even the hardest heart the hardest sinner in your life who is so far from Jesus. God can draw them. So we move to pray. And I pray often that God in his mercy would draw many to himself. And we're moved to pray. And I hope you see this, brothers and sisters, that we're moved to praise. That if you are a Christian this afternoon, it is gloriously because of God. When it comes to your salvation, you did not do that. You came because one prior to your coming chose you and in time regenerated you and drew you to himself. That's why we evangelize. That's why we hand out tracts. That's why we tell people about Jesus, because it's part of what God's plan to draw those that he has called to himself. If you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're a walking miracle because you are dead. You weren't a little bit sick. You are dead. You are dead in sins and trespasses, unable to come. I do not care how good your parents were. I do not care what kind of church you were in. If you were baptised as an infant, if you grew up in Sunday school your whole life, you needed a miracle to come because no one comes unless God Almighty draws them. And that is your testimony if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Promise 6, 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There's still a coming. He is effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely be made willing by his grace. The doctrine of God's sovereignty does not make us puppets on a string because a puppet does not have a will. A puppet is moved by a puppeteer, by an external coercion or compulsion. You just move a string and they move and that is not what God's sovereignty means. God's sovereignty renews your will. They were dead. They were only inclined towards, toward what is evil. And then by an effectual drawing and a supernatural and divine light, he gives you a new will that you might will to come. So as a Calvinist, I have no problem calling you to come to Christ, knowing that the sheep will hear his voice and knowing that when the miracle of regeneration is wrought in your heart, then you can come and you will come. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to Jesus. And do not miss the implication of this promise. If you do not come to Jesus, the implication is you have not heard from the Father and you have not learned from the Father. 
so much for thinking that there are many, many roads up the mountain that do not have to go through Jesus. Jesus himself says, if you do not come to me, you have not learned from the Father, you have not heard from the Father. It is impossible to be God's true disciple and not come to Christ. Conversely, you are not God's true disciple if you have not come to Christ. That is what he says. Whoever learns from the Father, hears from the Father, comes, infallibly comes. And promise 7, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And the simplest promise is the last. We're revealed these things. God has chosen to reveal these things. It's not really enough to say, well, it all makes sense in heaven because they have been revealed to us now for our assurance, for our encouragement. We're revealed these truths about election and perseverance and irresistible grace and we believe them and preach them and I commend them to you because they're in the scriptures. But then Calvin was careful to say, do not get your head lost in the abyss of predestination. Calvin warned against indulging in curious inquiries about eternal predestination because he knew where people would obsess. Well, am I chosen? Am I chosen? Am I elect? How do I know? Am I elect? Listen very carefully to what Calvin himself said. They are madmen who seek their own salvation or that of others in the whirlpool of predestination, not keeping the way of salvation which is exhibited before them. Faith is a sufficient attestation of the internal predestination of God. It's very important. He says, do not go for yourself or for others. Well, in eternity past did God choose them? Are they on the list? Are they predestined? No, Calvin said that that will lead you Mad, that that would make yourself crazy because you don't have access to the eternal recesses of God's mind. What you have access to is the promises of God. And God promises that if you believe and if you have faith, you are his. It is a simple question and a simple equation. Believe and you will live forever. That is the promise. Believe and you will live forever. Whoever believes in Jesus has now eternal life what is the nature of this believing are we talking about mere mental assent it it is a true statement it's about jesus true or false but i have some questions right about jesus what it is not less than mental assent but it is more than that think about all the words in the passage used to describe our relationship to faith eating drinking, coming. It is not just getting the theological test correct. It is not enough to hear without learning, verse 45. And it is not enough that we see without believing, verse 40. All who have heard, some have learned, all have seen, some truly believe. The Father gives, the Father draws, and the call is for you to come. Is there a miracle at work in your life? Maybe even this afternoon, a miracle at work in your life. Maybe everyone around you thinks you are a Christian, but you know that you're not a Christian. You know that you have not yet believed this. You know 
that when you have been coming, you've been just going through the motions? Is there a miracle at work in your life? Can you feel the Father drawing you to himself? Do not kick against the goads. Can you hear the Saviour calling? The sheep know his voice, planned from eternity, accomplished on the cross, and now at work in your life, maybe even right now, to come, to eat, to drink, to believe, to live, and all that the Father has chosen will come. May the Lord bless the word.